Hey, I'm Justin. And I'm Vivian. And we are your hosts for the podcast series called Mastering Your PhD, sponsored by Le Fonds de Recherche du Québec and powered by Neuro, the next generation mental health platform. This podcast is for students by students, aimed primarily at graduate students like yourself, who are trying to navigate through the ultra competitive and challenging world of academia. So today we're going to be talking to Dr. Salah El Mestikawi, professor in psychiatry at McGill and Dr. Michael Lifshitz, Associate Professor at McGill as well. Two professors in the same domain, psychiatry, neuroscience, but with two very different but complementary perspectives. One side is very concentrated on neurobiology and all those aspects, and the other side is more interested in environmental factors, cultural factors, spirituality, and stuff like that. It's a very interesting episode, one of my favorites, so enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Neuro Podcast. I'm particularly excited for today's episode. We have two prolific neuroscientists with us. Dr. Salah El Mestikawi, full professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University, PhD in neurosciences from the Pierre and Marie Curie University in Paris, postdoc at Duke University, and currently a, what we call a fundamental neuroscientist at the Douglas Mental Health Institute. Dr. Mestikawi and his team combines different approaches to analyze how the brain works, ranging from the molecular and fundamental functions to the most integrated aspects such as behavior and pathology. And we also have Dr. Michael Lifshitz, an up-and-coming star in the field, master's and PhD, Vanier Scholar from the Integrated Program in Neurosciences at McGill, postdoc training in anthropology at Stanford. He just recently accepted a position as assistant professor, Department of Psychiatry at McGill, with his lab situated, correct me if I'm wrong, in the Institute of Community Psychiatry at the Lady Davis Medical Research Institute at the, G- at the Jewish General Hospital. His research centers on comparing approaches to the transformation of consciousness, ranging from meditation to hypnosis, placebos, and psychedelics. Michael aims to synthesize knowledge of various contemplative practices to advance the science of attention, consciousness, and metacognition. And he's one of my supervisors. Yay. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, Great. everyone. So this podcast is for grad students, and we like to start our podcasts with asking you guys to think about back when you were a grad student. So if I could bring you back to that time, what were you doing on a Friday evening? You know, what were you thinking about? What, what would you be doing? Um, just kind of normal life. Who starts? You can go for it. Uh, me, I was <laughs> ultra busy at that time. I'm fundamentally hyperactive, so I was even more hyperactive. So I don't know, I was, I was in Paris first, and uh, I was in a really nice area of Paris, the center, the, you know, like the, where you have all the university, all the bars, all the cinema, um, just by last sense. So I would do a lot of social things. Uh, I was also doing uh, a lot of sports. Uh, I was very much into martial art, karate, so I was practicing almost every day. Uh, I was making photos. I was, and I was, uh, I mean, that was a time where uh, undergrad is uh, in France, which correspond to, yeah. So I was at the university in the center of Paris with the life of a a busy student. (laughs) That was a very nice uh, period of my life. 
and you, Michael? Um, on a Friday night. Friday night. Uh, <laughs> maybe things that I can't say here. Uh, I mean, you know. Say me. <laughs> no, I don't know. Friday evening, I guess if I'm lucky, I would be like pre-drinking with my friends before going to the club or something. Wow. There you go. What a life. What a life. Yeah. See? Yeah. That's so, amazing. you know what? I love that because... I think a lot of grad students look up to supervisors of being this kind of on a pedestal, you know, like I can never be there kind of thing. And it's so wonderful to be able to normalize of like, you guys were grad students and, you know, you kind of, you had fun and, um, we're yeah, fun we're allowed to have fun too. <laughs> Still try to have fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, that's great. To this day. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Hence your research. <laughs> Um, so talking about your research, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. We have both of your perspectives because I think mental health is not just a uh, neurobiology. And, you know, of course, um, Sally, you work with kind of understanding the genetic basis behind, you know, why we have addiction or why we get depressed, for example. Um, whereas Michael, you come at it more from a social perspective of things like mindfulness or practices. And I think mental health really is both, right? It's both a combination, I think, of neurobiology, but also cultural and social factors. And so I was wondering um, if both of you could comment on what do you think that intersection is, you know, from your research, what role does neurobiology have? How does it play into more of the social cultural factors? And how does that paint a bigger picture of what mental health is? If I can start because I'm older (laughs) (laughs) and I may fall asleep uh, (laughs) soon. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, That's a very uh, important and interesting question. Uh, at least from my perspective, it's uh, um, something striking for me as a, I'm a biologist after, after all, is that if you look at uh, other disease, like normal disease, uh, we know much more since longer. And uh, really the understanding of uh, mental health is at the beginning. And there's a reason for that. Uh, there are many reasons, uh, cultural, historical reasons, but there are also one, for me, very clear reason is that these are very, very complex diseases. And um, biology is very important. The brain is really key because it's the basis. It's uh, the engine that makes this thing. But uh, the brain has a very special uh, particularity. It interacts a lot with the environment. And for me, uh, studying uh, addiction, eating disorder, uh, depression, this kind of stuff, uh, I'll almost always clearly see the, how the interaction, the environment uh, has its uh, toll on, the, on mental health. So my point is that uh, uh, these diseases are so complex that there's no chance that only one domain will be able to find the key and uh, release the burden on, on mankind. If we want to do that, we have to work all together. All aspects are very important. Yeah. Yeah, from my side too, I mean, I feel like this is kind of, in a way, the overarching question of my research program. <laughs> so it's a bit hard to summarize. But I think basically when we're talking about mental conditions or mental health, you know, mental means we're dealing with the mind. And I think the mind is, of course, it it really does occupy this strange position between like the brain and the body. But then, you know, 
our, our myths about ourselves, our stories about ourselves, what we take ourselves to be, like this whole complex, irreducible fact of subjective experience and how we kind of understand our lives in relation to the lives of others around us and the social pressures that we have to face. And so, you know, to me, like, I kind of lean one way or the other, and I think different fields kind of lean different ways, like, either towards thinking, okay, you know, depression, for instance, is really about like having all of these pressures on you that you can't deal with, or if you're lonely or, you know, like all kinds of factors around you that would lead you to be depressed. But then on the other hand, it certainly seems like there really is, there are things that can happen in your brain that seem to predispose you to that, or that kind of can come into feedback loops with those kinds of circumstances. So then you're having all kinds of kind of, you know, biological changes that make it harder and harder for you to relate differently to your life and kind of come out of a slump, like a depressive slump. So, you know, it's, yeah, that's like the big challenge I think of mental health is that it really sits like between the hard sciences and like the whole complex realm of human life and like culture and the humanities in that, in that way. And, and do you think there's enough collaboration between those two worlds, like the neurobiology world, fundamental neuroscience and the more cultural aspects of psychiatry? Are, are these two groups of people talking to each other enough? That's a big question. And I hope I will not sound too negative, but I, I think it's really, really totally underdeveloped. Really, this is a very bad point. It's really something that makes us very weak in front of this terrible disease. It's really hard to work with, uh, for me as a biologist, to work with the community, with the... Uh, uh, I, I'm not blaming anyone. Right? It's a very deep and ancient cultural thing and there are some silos we are each, each isolated from each other it's really difficult to go transversally um, so it's I, I, I have a hard time working even with clinicians or working with I would love to have interaction with psychosocial divisions and do uh, you know like uh, uh, like trying to see uh, more how it's... Because for me, it's very clear. When I start with biology, animal models, even in mouse, uh, it's very clear that some mouse have the disrupted genes, the disrupted pathway, but they are perfectly fine. And another group is bad. So what has happened between these two groups? Why one is... So I'm trying to modelize uh, how early life stress or position in the, in the group, you know, like hierarchy or kind of tough to explain, but uh, uh, so this is where I see the interaction of the brain with the, the life and the environment of uh, given individuals. And uh, of course, this just by myself as a biologist is something really hard to, uh, to take into account. And there's one more aspect and then I stop, is that uh, uh, we have learned so much along the past, well, since I was a grad student and now, I've been doing uh, all the way 40 years of neuroscience, and I realized we have learned a lot uh, about the brain. And unfortunately, we we very we are very bad. Us neurobiologists are very bad at sharing this knowledge 
with the community and with people from other fields of research. So we really need to improve on that. Uh, we need to improve communication. We need to improve knowledge transfer and this kind of stuff. And this is where we need, uh, I mean, I need to go in classes with teachers and I need to go uh, in community. Ten seminars or... People. Yeah. yeah, I need to interact more. And, and also uh, I need also to find something positive from the other side, I would say, yeah. <laughs> which, may, which shows how much I myself I'm in a silo. <laughs> yeah, you see there's a problem in, in neuroscience then where there's silos that shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. Like the whole concept of McGill, the integrated program in neuroscience, that it's integrated. There's all kinds of different silos working together. But as we see in reality, that's not how it's working. We have, if, if I may say a word, I think that this is very deep. It's coming from far, yeah. far, far from the history of uh, human beings. Uh, and there's, there are some, probably less here in Canada, in North America, but at least in Europe, it's very intense. The opposition between something like a materialist point of view and a dualist point of view, where you, know, like you have a separation between mind, matter, etc., uh, which is not the point. It's really not the point. And all aspects have to be taken into account if we want to, uh, to be able to understand complex pathologies like that. Uh, but this ancient and historical uh, conflict is still alive uh, even uh, even even here at McGill probably not as intense as uh, in France for example but uh, it's still there this is probably one reason why it's so difficult to to collaborate between the different branches of uh, mental health sorry I was going to ask if I may ask a question kind of more specific to you know your research since you're both as experts in the field, what is a question that keeps you up at night, uh, either about your research or about that intersection of biology and um, the social aspect? What is a question I that you're like... I talk too much, so I think it's... Uh, <laughs> Michael's turn. Michael, go first, please. <laughs> um, a question that... Ooh, if I go for the one that really keeps me up at night, it might be a bit tricky to articulate, but I'll try. Yeah. So I'm interested in the kind of um, the feeling that people get where they basically feel like there's a kind of guidance that they're receiving where, and you know, it's like often associated with like religious experiences, I think. Um, but also with, for instance, psychedelic experiences, which we're looking into more and more where basically it's like, the question for me is if you kind of, and in a way it comes from like a psychoanalytic insight, which I know is kind of a field that maybe has right. a bad reputation these days. <laughs> Um, but basically that there might be certain kinds of intelligences lurking below the surface of awareness or consciousness, let's say that there's a kind of, and this is, this is really an open question for me that I'm interested in, but is there some kind of intuitive or spontaneous kind of guidance that we can access within ourselves, um, which can help us, uh, basically like make maybe better decisions about our lives or, help us kind of access feelings or allow us to like uh, have feelings that maybe we're quote unquote repressing, like move through us in productive ways. And I think, so it's interesting basically with psychedelics, the kind of treatment model um, that most people adhere to today is that you basically are quite hands off as a clinician. So you kind of give people this very powerful, uh, you know, mind altering drug, which 
loosens all kinds of habitual processes and constraints in the brain and the mind. And then basically the assumption is that if you hold a kind of nurturing, uh, safe space for that person, kind of like what needs to come up will come up. And there's some kind of like uh, instinctive healing process that takes over. And so I'm just really, I think that's such a mystery, whether that's true, what that is, how that Mm. works, um, in what ways that's like culturally conditioned, in what ways that's biologically conditioned. So I've been kind of like diving back into like psychoanalytic texts and trying to make sense of that in relation to like neuroscience about the default mode network and about uh, kind of like spontaneous thought processes Right. Um, so that's a question that for me is really alive right now, but I think it's going to take like decades to make sense of it. And we'll yeah. see. We, we have a, a study, a qualitative study with ketamine that, you know, it's going to give us insight about, you know, phenomenologically, what do people experience when they're in their trance, let's say, or in, or going through the ketamine experience? Cause we call it dissociative. We call it a psychomimetic. We, we don't know what to call it because we never went through the experience. Everyone has a different experience. It could be culturally uh, dependent or not. We don't know. We don't have that first person perspective on things. And is there something in you that's guiding the experience, is guiding the treatment? It's a very interesting question. And so we have to ask people, I guess, on the qualitative side, what's going on in there? You know, how about you, Edsela? Me, I'm uh, also, how can I put that? Well, can you hear me? It's a little yeah. bit, uh, yeah. There's uh, some rustling rest. in the background sometimes, but. Uh, let me hear closer you. to my computer. Yeah. Um, so me first, I, the question that, I, that really puzzled me uh, is not what I'm working on. Uh, I, me, the big question for me, it's uh, how come that I can see you? And how come that I can have this discussion with you? How come I can see the light, I can smell, I can taste? Who is the person inside my brain? Where is the people watching the movie? And, uh, you know, like, so what I'm interested, what I would love to know before I, I leave this world is um, how do we perceive the world? What is the machine that allows to do that? And, and uh, I see it from the perspective of a biologist, of course, So, you know, like the first organisms that were alive, it was obviously a big advantage to be able to perceive your environment, even in a very gross manner, to move in the right direction, feed yourself. And these things have been integrated for billions, millions of years and became uh, ultra sophisticated. Uh, So that's a question that I really would love to uh, be able to... um, I think the combination of uh, everything we are doing and uh, the progress of uh, recent progress of informatics and this kind of stuff integrated together over hundreds of years of work will probably help us to understand. I will not see that while I'm alive. Um, I had something more to say about that. Escape my mind. Yeah, so um, what I've learned from facing this ultra-complex question that and it's really my personal motivation to work on the brain, is that if I want to be happy and not to be depressed or commit suicide, (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, I have to, to choose simple questions. Right. Uh, so I try to take uh, mental health is just fascinating. You know, M mental health, if you think of it in terms of evolution, also uh, addiction, um, ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar, this big uh, disorder are, are present uh, in, uh, I mean, as long as we can see back in history. Right. In anorexia, for example, yeah. we have traces of anorexia in ancient Greece. Wow. And probably before. So it seems to be a pathology that is independent from uh, the place, the time, was existing old addiction, for example, also. Animals, uh, elephants, for example, will manage to get drunk. Monkey can do that by uh, eating fermented foods. And so, so there's something uh, about mental health that tells us something very important. Why are we so diverse? Why are, are we so different? And I'm not staying at personal level, individual levels, but uh, uh, so I guess there are reasons for uh, maintaining this kind of diversity. And uh, yeah, so that that's a way to take a complex question into something more simple and try to analyze it. Yeah, and it was an interesting uh, aspect that you said that I'm I ask myself simple questions. Is it your experience as a professor that, you know, that, that, oh, that yeah. brought you if to you, decide to, to concentrate uh, if on you, simple If questions? you work with the brain and your question is too broad, too complex, yeah. you very quickly hit a wall. <laughs> so you need to, to choose a simple hypothesis, test it. And of I mean, for example, I published a paper in 2015, if you look at it, yeah. and there was a lot of media around that. And what I was claiming, oh, I've discovered a gene of addiction, etc. Uh -huh. This was wrong. I, I was my interpretation. Wow. I, I was not. I, I mean, I was not lying or manipulating, uh -huh. whatever. This was my interpretation five years ago, and along the way, I learned more interesting and subtle things, and I completely changed my way. And this paper was wrong. It was a very important discovery because it helped us to identify a very specific gene that has mutated in adult population, and then to make models. And so, but when I tried to understand what this gene was really doing, I realized that the paper we published before, the interpretation was wrong. So that's why you need to start with simple questions. They will probably turn out to be wrong, but that's not an issue because this is how you will progress. Yeah, how you learn. Michael, do you think that you're starting with simple questions? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that in a way, you know, again, like I kind of work at the intersection of these different modes. And one, so in a way, like, I kind of simultaneously ask really big questions. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but then I think it's really important, and especially as a grad student as a, in a science kind of program, to realize that you have to like bring it down, bring it down to yeah. a simple operationalized thing. And you, you have to like... And that's a real challenge too when I'm studying like, you know, something like complicated cultural practices like meditation or like taking a psychedelic, like... These are so complex. So you have to think like, what is a tractable empirical thing that you can actually assess and start to get at that's interesting about those processes? And, you know, you can't answer everything in one study. You have to kind of like hone in on something that, like that have, feels like the next step. Have one big question maybe over the course of your career that you, you know, 
separate or but, divide but, into smaller more which also is always evolving right, right. like that question but. yeah but but what i what i said before is probably because i'm a biologist so yeah. as a biologist i can you know i can say oh, okay i'm going to look at dopamine in this and this area so that's a simple question but yeah. i don't i i don't know of, it's i guess Social or psychological questions are much more, and, and spiritual and religious questions are much more complex. If you do history, for example, it's very difficult to have simple hypotheses to explain a war or whatever. So, uh, yeah, the level of complexity will change with the level of integration where you're going. And I think the interesting, an interesting thing here to ask is, you know, I think you, both of your definitions of what is mental health might be a little different. Uh, Salah, what, what, what do you think is mental health or in, mental illness, let's say? What That's is mental an illness? excellent question. I can, I, I, if, I, if I'm, I may, I'm going to make a twist. Please. I mean, I would rather ask the question, what is being normal? <laughs> Not what is a mental health? Because I yeah. think if you think of, well, what we call mental health, probably... 80, 90% of us, probably more, we have a mental condition, mental health condition. Uh, why do I say that? It's for very simple, basic, practical reason. As I told you, like a few years ago, I was trying to understand what, does, what, what was addiction. So we had a couple of what we call gene candidates who are targeting something very specific in the brain. And then the question was, what do you use? If you do ge human genetics, what do you use to compare these, uh, uh, these mutated genes. So what tells you what, where is the norm? And so um, my genetic friend told me that they had something called a hypernormal people. It's a, a person with no history of addiction, depression, anxiety, blah, 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 you know. Uh, and not only that, their parents and grandparents have to have the same criteria. And, and in fact, when you use your control population in genetic, this is when I realized that these were the people who were not normal. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, now, can you imagine someone in a family where your parents and the parents of your parents have never had any issue with anxiety, depression, addiction, uh, phobia? Uh, I mean, I, you know, it's, this is really not normal. So my guess is that Uh, evolution biology is something hyper complex and one clearly uh, something really powerful in this is you have to create to create diversity you know like this you create uh, diversity you may adapt if something happened or in a different environment blah 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 so uh, so the question is more for me uh, what is being normal That's really and, interesting. And, and this is a bit provocative because, of course, when you are when you have uh, intense addiction, depression, or uh, autism, or whatever, you you really have a big uh, handicap, and there's something special going on there. And if I might interject here, I also think what adds to the complexity is that mental illness and mental health is something that happens internally, and so the only way we can measure that is. We ask that person, right? Like, are you feeling depressed on a scale of one to 10 or, or all these things? And sometimes we talk a lot in this podcast about awareness. And the first step is becoming aware. But if you're not even aware that you're depressed and maybe even if you're anorexic, you know, the most anorexic actually don't want to admit that they're anorexic, you know. And so it's it's complicated because 
there really is no objective measure of what's happening in your mind because you are perceiving that and then transmitting that to the world. So I think that adds another layer of complexity. And Michael, do you, what is your concept of mental illness or mental, let's say, normalcy, normality? Yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, it's funny. I, I realized that I've never really thought about this Get deep out. question. <laughs> um, I guess like where my mind goes is just, yeah, kind of similarly to Sela, like what, what do you, what are the kind of cultural norms around what counts as healthy? So I guess it's complicated because on the one hand, I want to say something like that. But then on the other hand, like I've had periods where I've been quite, depressed like recently during the pandemic and in those moments it's like quite obvious that I just don't feel well you know and that I want to feel better and it's just kind of this basic um valence like I don't feel good and I know that there are other times in my life where it hurts less so maybe like in a way my kind of fundamental definition would be something like uh, mental health would be where your mind doesn't hurt. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, like sometimes maybe there are also situations where things hurting can lead to all kinds of innovations or creative, you know, like it's also a certain kind of uh, like way of thinking that we should always feel good in the first place or something too. So, right. It's going to be some kind of balance, but maybe it's like some overall balance that aligns with what we want from our minds or from our lives. Right. Because that also is so contextual. Like some people might value feeling well, some people might value like being creative or helping others and, you know, different. So, yeah, it's really hard to kind of like land on one definition. But I think if your mind really hurts all the time, that's that's hard. You know, if it's making your life feel bad for, for you and for the people around you. Then. So, yeah, I totally share your point of view. And it's really puzzling and frightening when you're wondering about this question. But I don't want people listening to this to think that, I am, or you are, Michael, denying the existence of mental health uh, because this is a big issue uh, in society. It's like, uh, well, I can say a few, we can discuss that in a few minutes, but uh, uh, there, there are some issues. It's like when you have a very severe addiction with alcohol or drugs, uh, suddenly you and your family and people around you will suffer a lot. The, the negative consequence will be terrible. If you are schizophrenic, your life is going maybe may become really hard, etc., etc. So there are some points, and it's where do you put the limit? Where uh, where it becomes a really a real handicap to have the full-blown form of anorexia, schizophrenia, addiction, whatever. Depression, suicide, you know, like it can go really far. But I also realize that, he, for example, if you look at me, when I look at my, the genes I'm working on, this is, this, is, this is very strong, I think, the mice where I mutated the genes that call addiction also have something very special. They are ultra-efficient in uh, everything they do. Uh, the success rate of a group of mice uh, 
when you do an average test is around 50-60%. Like 50-60% animal will do the test. Um, some type of mutation, it will fall to 20-30%. Some of the mutation that give, uh, one, for example, this mutation that gives um, addiction uh, is uh, the animal in the cage have an 80-90% success rate in all the tests we have uh, run on them. That's for me. That was really interesting because if you look in families of people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, some people are really sick and, and have a miserable life, but some of them are pure genius. And if you look through throughout history, I don't know. It's so easy to yeah, like Schubert, Schumann, uh, Van Gogh, uh, Blessandras. I don't know. Like you have so many of them. Like and, and like if you go to music, whatever. Like so many people ultra gifted and ultra exp like expressive and so important for humanity uh, that and these pathologies come with very dark sides when you're uh, uh, you have to be hospitalized and some of them are very bright and are a gift so uh, it's very important to consider uh, so that's why the question what is mental health and where do you put the border is a bit uh, is a tricky one, but we, we have to work hard on that. So that was a very interesting first part to our episode. Now, can't wait to present you the second episode, so stick around. <laughs>